Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, the magical Kelly Link is going to tell us about her deeply strange and sweet new novel, The Book of Love. I don't think of this book as a romance, but I do think of it as a love letter to romance. But first, let's sit back and relax with two excellent humans. With us this week is Nyla Boodoo. She's the host and editor of the Axios podcast, One Big Thing. Nyla, welcome back. Always a pleasure to be here. Also here is the subject of the upcoming documentary, Your Fat Friend and co-host of Maintenance Phase, Aubrey Gordon. Aubrey, hello. Thank you so much for having me back. Okay, so I want to talk about an article that came out this week from The Cut. I thought this one was so interesting. The headline is, The Return Grift is Over. And it's all about how it's getting harder and harder to buy a bunch of stuff online and then return it. There's an example in the story of someone who ordered like $200 worth of stuff from Urban Outfitters and ended up returning most of it and then like tried to buy something from them a couple months later and found out that she was banned from shopping there. Um, The story mentions a number of different brands, including ASOS and Saks and Sephora. It turns out most of them don't have like a super clear policy about, you know, the point to which you are like you know, taking advantage of these generous return policies, but they're starting to lock down on people who they think are are getting away with too much. In this article, some people are definitely getting away with too much. Um, but I was really curious what y'all think about this one. Aubrey, what's your take? Uh, my take is welcome to the world of fat people, thins, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so as a fat person, I have lived pretty much my entire adult life in the world of, Uh, You can only get clothes online and Mm -hmm. sometimes made to order, which means that you have to deal with an online based return system, which means way fewer things get returned. Mm -hmm. And what that means is you have to be really, really thoughtful about checking size charts, taking your measurements, checking the fabrication of things, because more often than not, as a fat person, when you buy something, you're kind of stuck with it, especially if it's clothes. Um, So, uh, I I feel like welcome to the world of the rest of us mm. <laughs> uh, is step one. But the flip side is I definitely know many people in my life who are repeat return offenders. Mm. And usually the bigger problem is, again, that they buy super readily and then return freely, right? That they think of buying as their opportunity to try things on and then return them, all of that kind of stuff, right. which I think is just like a troubling relationship to things and to buying that I don't love. I would just love it if we could come up with solutions that address those sort of super returners um, and would also address barriers to access for people who need stuff, including clothing, you know, fat people, tall people, people who need adaptive clothing, so on and so forth. It would be great if we could bridge those gaps. That's my general feeling. 
Right. Well, if, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different issues that come up with a story like this. One that I think about is like, sometimes it can be hard even for me to find my size in a store. So, you know, I might want to order a couple sizes online. Like I tried to find a new swimsuit recently and that was like a whole journey of like, yeah, I'm going to get, you know, long torso, like, right. All of this stuff. But then, you know, this article also mentions like stylists who are returning like $15,000 worth of stuff to Saks after dry cleaning the makeup off because they used right. it at a photo shoot, which is like, okay. So I thought when I saw the headline for this story, mm-hmm. I was terrified. I was like, this is me. You're getting called out. <laughs> I, have a troubling, I have a troubling relationship to buying things. And then I read the article and I was like, oh no, these people have like a troubling relationship to buying things. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just, it's too much, right? I think Aubrey, yeah. to your point, it's excessive. And the one thing I will say in defense of this is post pandemic. And again, I will say as someone who is petite mm. and like and needs to buy petite clothes, they're not in the store. Right. And so you have to buy like three or four sizes online and then just kind of game it and see what works. Yep. And sometimes it doesn't work, right? And so I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get banned from Zara or <laughs> Ann Taylor for all of the things that I return uh, because I had to buy new work clothes because hello, has mm-hmm. everyone not worn work clothes for four years? Right. Also, odds are your body has changed over this very stressful yep. four years. It has. <laughs> And so, yeah, I think, I mean, I return a lot of things, but I also think there's several problems here, most of which is that the inventory is not in a store for you to try it on. Mm -hmm. And so then you have to buy things online and return in the store. But now I've started noticing, this is the other thing, I'm irritated by this. When there's a sale, if you want to buy it on clearance, it says final sale and you can't return Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. That's not great. No, that's when we're like, you definitely have to already know your size and like the brand, you know, because otherwise, yeah, you're probably just going to be out however many dollars. I also think there's a real level of privilege to being able to buy three or four of the same thing, right? Because it's like, how long are you going to have maybe a couple hundred dollars like on your credit card or out of your checking account or whatever sitting Mm -hmm. there while you're waiting on that return? Like it's all terrible really (laughs) yeah much less like the time to go to a place either a store if they offer in-store returns or like a ups store or a fedex store Mm -hmm. to like make your returns like during business hours good luck right Right. right. absolutely so i'm really interested in the amazon try before you pay which i have not used but i've seen this with shoes where they will send the shoes to you and then if you want to keep them they charge you for it or otherwise you just return it Well, and like the stuff they say you can just keep and the stuff they insist on you bringing back, like there's no consistency about that at all. I feel like my great wish for all of this is there's a much larger note here, which Mm. is uh, people who wear petites, people who wear tall sizes and people who wear plus sizes, plus anyone who needs adaptive clothes are not able to try things on in your store. So there may be a bigger note here for corporations <laughs> that you need to actually stock our sizes in store if you want to help get to the root of some of this return stuff, right? Um, is that like people have to actually have the options uh, to try things on uh, where they are. Or you have to have friends, right? Like, so I have a friend, I just bought my first purchase from Universal Standard. And mm. I have a friend who loves the brand and she was like, try this dress on. And I had no idea what my size was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I will say, even by the stressing chart, I wasn't really sure what my size was going to be. And But I tried a size she had on, and then I was like, okay, she bought this dress, so I can try it on. So now I know this is my size. Hmm. Yeah. But I, how are you supposed to know that? 
I mean, I guess measuring. Who's? I mean, to people oh, yeah. like I applaud you for measuring. I never. You're measuring, measure. Aubrey. Yeah, absolutely. There's like no other option as a fat lady, <laughs> because uh, I will say I own clothing that is marked uh, a size two X, and I own clothing that is marked a size six X. Right. There oh, is no God. rhyme or reason. Yeah, that's and that's a problem. Like, that's variation. Men's yeah. clothing is not like this. No. Mm-hmm. No. No, no, no. They just list the inches of things. Great. <sighs> Thumbs up. Amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I am absolutely measured to the hilt. I would say like twice a year, maybe I take mm. my measurements and make mm-hmm. sure that they're accurate because my God, you're just SOL uh, without them. And as uh, again, as a fat person, like a fair amount of clothing is also made to order. Um, mm, so there's right. no returns there. Any They're not going to return way, that at right? all. Yeah, mm-hmm. huh. absolutely, Ugh, man. I will say to the aforementioned uh, universal standard, they have a program also that I find really interesting. Their core collection is part of what they call their Fit Liberty program, which is if you buy something from them and your size changes within a year, you can just exchange it for your new size. Wow. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's it's the one true way. Like, listen, if you're a person who's giving birth right, yeah. and you buy some clothes, like you should be able to get that in whatever size Ugh. your body settles into after yeah. giving birth. Wow. If your weight is fluctuating, if you've just had weight loss surgery or you're going through significant weight gain, like right. all of that just seems like what a dream. If you're growing, you're getting yes. taller. It's just like normal <laughs> life. In other words, all yeah, these things totally. that just happen to people as part of their regular <laughs> life circumstances. Oh my God. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm just yeah. like, there are ways, you know what I mean? There are ways to manage, yeah. uh, to sort of manage folks ability to return things and to, you know, deal with sort of the excess that comes along with that. <sighs> and I think that's one of the more innovative ones. I really like yeah, it. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. So I also want to talk about a new dating app that came out this week. It is called score and it is people, f- <laughs> it is for people with good to excellent credit. Like no. you literally can't join if your credit is less no. than 675. <laughs> Good Lord. (laughs) Who wants to be around those people? I don't want to be around those people. Maybe it's good that they're self-selecting out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have a new red flag for dating and it's anybody on this goddamn app. (laughs) Just to be super real. Join it and then cross-reference on on Hinge or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. This feels like an entry point to Raya. Do you know what I mean? Like, uh, hey, yes. do you not have the endorsements to get onto Raya? Join this credit score garbage app. <laughs> so I will say I have a lot to add to this because uh-huh. so Greta, back in the day, I don't know if you remember this, when Greta and I used to be colleagues at WBEZ. Mm-hmm. And at one point in time, WBEZ was doing dating events. And oh my God. do you remember this, Greta? No, I blocked that out. So... <laughs> And this is when I was hosting at WBEZ. So I hosted dating events for WBEZ. And I will never forget one guy who was like, it was like storytelling based, which was lovely because it's like, okay, you meet someone from how they want to share their story. Sure. And one of them ways to share your story was via numbers. And I will never forget this one guy. He was like, zero is my number. That is how much debt I have. And I was just like, oh no, this is what you're leading with. (laughs) That was like 10 years ago. And I still remember that dude. (laughs) That's so funny. I mean, it is, I will say 
Financial stress is often listed as one of the most common reasons for divorce in the United States. There are reasonable, again, this is like, again, with like the returns, like this is symptomatic of a larger problem, right? right? Like we know that people should talk about like if they're financially compatible. It's complicated. But someone who decides that this is their threshold? No. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's atrocious. It's. Yeah. I mean, I'll say as a. I also have a lot to contribute to this topic as a longtime 90 day fiance viewer. <laughs> I love it. There are simply way too many of the couples who get selected for reality TV that never have the conversation about money. Mm. I think there's a difference between having a conversation with someone who you plan to settle down with mm-hmm. and making that the like a barrier to entry, which is essentially saying, I only want to date upper middle class people. Right, right, right. right. Like, it is so clearly classed. Let Um, alone how, like, also racist credit score stuff is, too. I mean, there are, like, any number of, like, isms in that. Mm -hmm. So, I guess recent, they also excludes, like, recent immigrants to America. Right, right, right. A a good credit score. People with medical debt. Neat. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Good threshold to set, everybody. Uh, Yeah, no, it it seems like absolute garbage. And like, Mm -hmm. boy, oh boy, once again, I wish there was a way to like prompt conversations amongst long-term partners. But like first date material, you Mm -mm. don't need to know this business. You Mm -mm. don't need to know this business. Mm Mm-mm. No, zero percent. I mean, I feel like there are much more salient thresholds to set for dating. Yes, yes. Uh, I would say for me, white people with locks. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, that That's is a really fine. good one, actually. Cargo yeah, pants, yep. they're coming back. Not for me. I'm out. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think yeah. there are things that yeah. are like uh, suitably shallow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Like yes. totally workable for like a dating context. And you don't need to go down this like deep shame road, which I feel like is the credit score road, right? Like that's some big, deep feelings that come from things that are largely outside of our control. So like, right. let's not, let's yeah, not, let's not, let's find other stuff. So yeah, Nyla, do you have any, like, are there deal breakers for you on the apps? Well, it's funny. Cause I was just thinking that I was at a work dinner this week and one of the ice breakers was, would you rather date someone who was perfect for you in any way, but was a Disney adult or a flat earther? <gasps> and we had to go around the table and people had to pick and i was like obviously disney adults like i'm a journalist i can't be with a conspiracy theory person yeah i'm dying that's an excellent question that's an excellent question wow it's i don't like it I don't want to choose between. I mean, you're right. The flat earth for sure. But people were very divided on this question. I mean, that's a really, that's really tough. Someone who's perfect for you, but insists on quote unquote, listening to both sides as a justification for listening to Joe Rogan. Right. right, right. (laughs) Well, well, and then it's like, how, how perfect are they for you? You know? Yeah, that's right. And here we are. Deal breakers. (laughs) Here we are. Nihilist deal breakers, Disney adult and flat earther. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. Well, all I can say, my friends, is that I think you two are perfect. And I'm so grateful for both of you for coming on this week. Thank you. Listen, I don't care what either of your credit scores are. This was great. <laughs> I also don't care how many things you return. Okay. <laughs> good, 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 good. Let's cut the tags off these friendships. We're keeping them. <laughs> 
All right, let's take a quick break. And then in just a minute, we are going to hear from the Kelly Lake. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Our next guest is someone I am super excited to have on Nerdette. Kelly Link is a Pulitzer finalist and a MacArthur Award recipient. She is the author of a number of short story collections, and her first novel is out now. It is called The Book of Love, and it's about four teenagers, sisters Susanna and Laura, who hate each other's guts but also love each other passionately, Daniel, who has been fooling around with Susanna, and Mo, who likes boys and writes songs that no one hears. Without giving too much away, the broad strokes of this book are that three out of those four kids have died and then come back to life almost a year after they first disappeared. If they want to stay alive, though, they need to learn magic, appease at least one tempestuous deity, and find the key to a portal, all while also navigating crushes and dreams and younger siblings. Also, for some reason, no one in their lives remembers them dying. They all think they went to music school in Ireland, which feels deliciously apt. Kelly, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for that description of the book. I'm terrible at uh, describing books in a way (laughs) that I feel would make anybody interested in them. So that was that was delightful. Oh, good. So how did you decide on Ireland as the death metaphor? I think that, uh, well, I have a I have a good friend in Ireland who was an immense help when I was writing this book. Mm. She read drafts of it. She gave me feedback. She gave me a beautiful necklace with the moon on it, mm. uh, with some cursing on the back of the pendant <laughs> uh, when I was feeling some despair. Mm. Um, and I think in part, I... I but well, I'll send them to Ireland. They don't go there, but I'll send them there in part because of my friend Sarah. And also in part because uh, it seemed it seemed plausible but but funny to me. Mm-hmm. When you're writing a novel, you have to you have to keep yourself entertained. It's pretty good. It's perfect. <laughs> um I have to ask, what's the cursing on the back of the pendant, if you don't mind sharing? Uh, absolutely. Um it says the fucking moon. <laughs> <laughs> my god that's perfect <laughs> and I, I wore it every day that I worked on this book oh I love that so I loved a lot of things about this book I think one of my favorites was the relationship between Susanna and Laura I don't have a sister but it just felt like the rendering of that relationship was so perfect the idea that like you could both be so deeply frustrated and also so adoring of a person who you share so much space with I have a sister who is two and a half years younger Mm. than me. (laughs) We had a very tumultuous relationship when we were living in the same house. Uh, For years, you could still 
see, you could still see a scar on my stomach where she bit me. Oh my God. Uh, when, when she was maybe seven. Um, and so I was definitely pulling from that. Uh, we do love each other. We are great friends now. Um, you know, I, one of the wonderful things about family and getting older it is, although it's not, I suppose, always wonderful, but the way in which your relationships change as you slide into adulthood. Mm -hmm. There's this great moment. I'm going to see if I can describe it without giving too much away. I think I can, where like Susanna writes herself a note so that she doesn't forget something and she gives it to her mom and she's like, listen, give me this note if I seem really mad at my sister because then something's wrong, but give me this note if I seem like I'm getting along with her really well because then something's <laughs> wrong. And it was just like, yeah, that that seems like it. <laughs> there's that, uh, you know, I'm a parent now and we only have one kid, but there's the moment, uh, even as a parent, where you think things are a little too smooth right now. <laughs> Somebody is behaving a little bit too well or these people are getting along too well. <laughs> Something is clearly up. <laughs> So uh, one of the other characters, Mo, grew up with his grandmother, who is a black woman who wrote romance novels under a white pseudonym, who was like, just seemed like such an amazing force of nature. Um, but it made me wonder, like, there are enough sort of romance-y tropes coming up in this book, even just, you know, in describing what the grandmother wrote, that it made me wonder if you read romance novels. I was a big reader of romance novels through my 20s and 30s. Hmm. Uh, during that period, I was going through an MFA program, and I think uh, it was kind of a a tether for me, a reminder that that uh, there was something worthwhile and wonderful about genres which adhere to formulas, hmm. but which are still capable of producing enormous surprise and enormous delight in their readers. It's not that every book has to follow a narrative, the same narrative pattern, but that there is infinite variation, um, even minor variations on a familiar pattern mean that a book is going to strike someone as, as new and, and bring them pleasure. Mm -hmm. So yeah, would you consider this a romance novel? I mean, it's called The Book of Love. I was really glad that the, the title um, came to me. Uh, it was not the working title of the book, hmm. but there was a point at which, having finished the book, I thought, I think I know what the title is. It wasn't, uh, was it going to be The Fucking Moon? <laughs> surprisingly, no. Although <laughs> the moon did feature, I, I had a, a working title for a bit that was Kill the Moon, hmm. uh, which is something that you see people say online. Uh, and it was sort of useful to me as a reminder that. I think just to have fun, uh, <laughs> but the titles, especially during the draft period, titles are for you and they can be, they can be in jokes or they can be something that, that tells you something about what your goal is. Um, but no, I, I didn't have a great working title and it wasn't until the book was done and I was thinking about the work of titles. You know, one thing a title does is it gives you it gives you some information about how to read a book. Mm -hmm. And love is important in this book, not just romantic love, but um, love of life, love of family, uh, complicated kinds of love. Mm -hmm. So the, I don't think of this book as a romance, but I 
do think of it as a love letter to romance. Mm. And I try to engage with as much of the business of, of romance novels as I could. Mm. I wanted uh, to at least gesture towards happy endings. Mm. I love that. Yeah, I think there's a lot of tenderness in this book too, which I think speaks also to love. I feel very tender towards all of the characters, mm. even the even the terrible ones. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm very grateful that I got to spend a lot of time with them. And by a lot of time, I mean eight years. <laughs> so one of my favorite scenes is um, where our three dead kids are in their high school music teacher's classroom. And he asks them how they would define magic. And they each have really different answers. One says magic is something happening that shouldn't happen. Another says it's about control, like being able to make things happen or not happen. And the third is glorious. He says it's like candle pin bowling or baseball cards or asparagus pea. And I love all of these answers so much, but it made me wonder, I mean, you know, you occupy this space in your writing that is, you know, you mentioned fairy tales before, Um, There is so much magic and a lot of it is deeply weird too. And I wonder, have you thought about like how you define magic? Oh, oh, that's one of the great things about writing from the point of view of a lot of different characters Mm. is you get to, um, in their individual reactions or their definitions um, of something like magic Mm. or their their thoughts about an event, you get to explore the different ways that you feel about something. You know, they don't always mesh entirely with with your way of thinking about things, but the way that characters think about them. But there is an impulse in there where you think, is this a way that would be useful to think about life or about music or about magic? Um, and I, I do love Daniel's answer. He's being sarcastic. But um, at whatever point I learned out, I learned about asparagus pea, um, <laughs> I was kind of surprised and also just delighted that the teams um, are so strange that, uh, you know, one person smells it, one person doesn't, mm-hmm. one person produces asparagus pea, but can't smell it. Just all of those weird combinations. It's like the the genes that sort of dictate um, the weird shapes that people can make their tongues into, right? <laughs> when you're a kid and you're figuring out uh what your body is capable of mm-hmm. or what being a human being means. Um, these sort of weird, tiny bits to me feel something like magic. And I think the I, what, I, what I find uncomfortable, I guess, in a lot of books about magic is this way in which it functions as a metaphor for power. Mm. And I think there's something right about that. But I also think if... If you start going down that road, if you start if you start thinking about the way in which access to magic means that someone has access to a great deal of power, uh, then something that is a fun thought experiment becomes complicated. Mm. Even people who are well intentioned, um, who are people I would like to hang out with in real life. When you give them unlimited amounts of of power mm-hmm. or influence or money or magic, there's something very unsettling about that. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's interesting because, yeah, I 
was sort of reflecting on what it seemed like magic meant in this, in this book. And it, I did write down the word power, power, but I also wrote down potential and hope. And I think those are also really, because it's less about trying to have power over others as much as it is around like also surprise, you know? And I do think that, that magic can also function as a kind of stand in for, for change for someone being free to be themselves, Mm -hmm. free to access their interests. But that's, that's true of money and power as well. Right. But, and this, this is all sounding, uh, I realize very, very deep, uh, very political. I should say it's sounding very shallow slash deep. Um, <laughs> but it is something when you write about the fantastic, you think, what metaphors for the real world am I intersecting with? What am I saying, even if I don't realize it, mm. um, about things like power and excess? Mm-hmm. I think something else I really loved about this book is that it circles really beautifully around the idea of like what is real and if that even matters. I, I mean, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, I feel uh, day to day fairly grounded in the real world. Um, But my, my work as a writer, I feel is, is very uh, untethered. Mm in many in many ways from the real world that I am making things up um and you know sometimes I have to go away and feed my chickens or do the dishes just so that I feel like I have a human body again Mm. um but it's also pretty great that my work involves uh a lot of the time just making things up because I think that they would be interesting to explore or to write about or to share with other people. Yeah. I mean, that, that in and of itself is pretty magical. My last question for you is if you could turn into an animal, what animal would it be? Oh, what a great question. (laughs) And I have to pick just one. I know that is the challenge. Your characters get to turn into a whole bunch, which does seem like the way to do it. But I think for the sake of this conversation, I yeah. am going to limit you to just one. And I apologize for that. <laughs> no, I think that feels totally fair. I'm just greedy. I think I would actually go with a seagull mm. in part because so many of the characters in this book turn into seagulls. Mm-hmm. They get to fly. They get to be near the ocean. Both of those things seem amazing. Mm-hmm. But also because they will steal french fries, you know, right out of your hand. And I find that admirable. <laughs> well, Kelly, thank you so very much for coming on and, and sharing this book with me. I'm really excited for people to get to read it. Well, thank you so much. This was this was an enormous pleasure. that's it for this week thank you as always for listening along and speaking of books we are at the midway point of this very brief month which means next week we are recording our discussion of kylie reed's book come and get it this book is so fizzy and frothy and it's going to be such a pleasure to unpack 
And I would love to hear what you think. Of course, you don't have to even have finished the book. If you want to leave us a voicemail, just record yourself on your little smarty phone and then email that audio file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. And if you do it before next Friday, you may end up in our episode. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR network. And our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.